You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Strange Familiars, the Neighbors Mowing Edition. You could just call that the Summer Edition. <laughs> Why they chose to do it starting pretty much at twilight, it's their call, I guess. Yeah, yeah. The vindictive side of me might want to start mowing at 3 a.m., but... <laughs> <laughs> I'll tie some flashlights to the front of the push mower. On tonight's show, I will be talking with Mr. W.T. Watson. I know him as Travis, but his books are written under the name of W.T. Watson. We're going to be talking about two of his books, Mysteries in the Mist, and his new book, Canadian Monsters and Mysteries. Is Red Green involved? Absolutely. <laughs> the number one cryptid in Canada. He is sort of a proto-flannel man. Before we get to Travis, I want to remind everybody that one of our listeners, longtime supporters, Maynard, is seeking help. He's got a lot of hospital bills. He hurt himself, couldn't walk, had to get surgery, and had to go back in and get another surgery. We have a GoFundMe link that we put up last week in the show notes. We'll put it up again this week. If you can afford to help Maynard, go ahead and click on that link. Every little bit helps. And speaking of Maynard, you know Maynard's a patron, right? Mm -hmm. This is going to be a seamless segue. Right into the Patreon. You may notice that today's episode number is 332. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you get your podcast through just a podcatcher, if you're not a patron, the last podcast you got from us 129. Was 329. 329, <laughs> yeah. Not 129, that would be back a couple of years. <laughs> so if I'm doing the math correctly, that's a two-episode difference. It's a two-episode gap, and you might be saying to yourself, where did those two episodes go? Do they not know sequential mathematics? Why well, was 329 the last episode I got? And 332 is this episode. I got it. Missing time. Possibly. Yeah. But. They could be patrons. They are patron episodes. Patrons got two episodes in between last week Mm -hmm. and this week. 
Patrons get two full extra episodes of Strange Familiars every month. We don't often drop them in the same week. It just happened to work out that way for this month. If you like what we do and you want to get extra content and want to help us make Strange Familiars, the best way to support the show is by becoming a patron at Patreon. It's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. There's different tiers of support there, and there's options to pay monthly or to pay yearly, and you get an even bigger discount if you want to pay yearly. But all of our patrons, no matter what tier support, they choose. They get those two full extra episodes of Strange Familiars every month. And of course, I want to thank our patrons because we could not do Strange Familiars without them. Well, let's go ahead and get to my talk with Mr. W.T. Watson. I'd like to welcome Travis Watson back to the show. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing good. A uh, little late for us old folks, but you know, <laughs> got to do what you got to do, right? <laughs> well, I'm a night bird. Sorry about that. Yeah, no worries. No worries. I, I'm going to probably end up doing more nighttime stuff anyway, so I better get used to it. <laughs> We're going to talk tonight about a couple of your books. You were on before for your Black Dog book. What was the, the title of the Black Dog book? Sorry, I'm blanking on it. Phantom Black Dogs, Walkers of the Liminal Way. Yes, which I really enjoyed, and I equally enjoyed Mysteries in the Myths, which we're going to talk a little bit about tonight, and then we're going to segue into a newer book that you've recently published. Trying to keep up with you. I'm Uh, having trouble here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm slowing down a little bit now. uh, The the next one's not due until December, so um, you you guys will all get a chance to take a breath before you have to talk to me again. My, my goal is, um, is a book a year, and sometimes I can meet that, and sometimes I can't. But uh, yeah, well, you know, uh, I know you have a, a super busy life, and and you know, I'm sure that, that doing the podcast takes up a lot of the time too. So the other book, the one we're talking about tonight, mostly is Mysteries in the Mist, uh, Mist, Fog, Clouds, and Paranormal. I just published uh, Canadian Monsters and Mysteries, all with Beyond the Fray, as, as with all of my other books. So that one came about as a result of my actually having moved to Canada. Uh, my partner got a job at uh, the University of Waterloo, and uh, we moved up here a couple of years ago. And of course, being the oddball that I am, I had to see, well, what kinds of strange things are, are available in Canada? And I discovered that there's quite a lot of paranormal goodness up here. So I, I got working on that book, too, and it came together pretty quickly. And so that one just launched a couple of weeks ago. And you have an author page on Amazon. People oh, can, I do. People yes. can find your stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. And, of course, we'll put some links in the show notes so anybody can find you that way as well. Mysteries in the Mist. Obviously, and very plainly, this is about mist, smoke, and fog in paranormal accounts across the board. Mm-hmm. It's such a ubiquitous part of it that a lot of these accounts, even the ones I was familiar with, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, there was fog in that. Oh, yeah, there was a mist in that mm-hmm. account. You know, it's so ubiquitous that that you almost need to take a step back mm-hmm. and look at it specifically as, you know, in these mist and fog type events. Yeah, uh, you're actually partially responsible for this book. <laughs> Because you'll remember when we, when I was on talking to you about Phantom Black Dogs uh, the last time, we got talking about uh, signs of a paranormal incursion. 
And we were talking about Jenny Randall's Oz effect and the silence that descends, the time distortion, the feeling that something's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were talking about uh, anomalous lights as, as a sign for some, some incursions and, and a couple of other things. And I had done a lot of interviews, quite a number of interviews on the Phantom Black Dog book. And I got to thinking, you know, there were several accounts in that book that had fog in them. And so I was wondering to myself, as we were sitting there that night, if, you know, these mists, fogs, clouds, and so forth were actually signs of paranormal incursion, you know, something else that one might look for. And I I went down that rabbit hole and and this book is the result. And uh, so I I have to thank you for, you know, being a partial inspiration for for the book. There were several things that that came up that that gave me the idea. But being on this show also was was something that uh, got me going on the research for this. And as you can see from the book, it's it's it is it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's in. Every aspect of the paranormal from cryptid stories, you know, Sasquatch and Dogman stories to ghost stories to UFO encounters to things that that we can't really put a label on, but they involve clouds and, you know, clouds doing strange things. The research for this one was really mind-blowing for me. It's one of those books that, you know, which I love. I love these. It's like, Somebody probably should have written this 20 years ago, but it, you know, they didn't. So it's, it's a really cool thing. It's just like, yeah, it's, you know, this is, like I said, it's just all over the phenomena. It's great Mm -hmm. to see it approach like this. I I really enjoy your approach. Well, I thank you. Um, You know, and, and again, I, I don't know why someone hasn't done this previously, but about the closest I've seen anybody come was um, uh, Jenny Randall's with um, some of her work in, in ufology and, and, you know, the whole, that, as I said, that idea of specific effects accompanying in her case, she was talking about UFO phenomena, but other writers have kind of expanded that out to include other paranormal phenomena. But uh, I would have thought uh, given the, as you said, the prevalence, the ubiquity of mist, fogs, clouds, and in, in the paranormal that somebody would have picked up on it before. I guess I was just, you know, in the right place at the right time. About a decade ago, I remember seeing like a spate of stories that popped up about sentient mists. And I remember mm. thinking like, this is going to be, you know, the next kind of Slender Man or whatever the mm-hmm. you, know, you know trend of the moment is because yeah. I, I kept seeing whatever it. Whatever the thing of the week is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I kept seeing it, kept seeing it, and then it just kind of, no pun intended, faded out. Like, yeah, and uh, you know, I I've included some stories in the book that I don't know if you'd so much call them sentient myths, but they're certainly myths with a very particular effect, which can range from you know somebody driving into the the cloud and and disappearing completely. Uh, as happened to, uh, there was a, a group of Japanese businessmen who were driving off to play golf and a car passed them on the road that they were on, drove into a cloud and didn't come out the other side. Uh, I think that was a John Keel story, if I remember right. It's been a while since I did the research on this. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, there are probably my favorite, you know, sort of missed having an effect and we don't know what caused it. The story was, a, I call it the anti-gravity mist. Young man is, is riding a motorcycle in Great Britain 
and it is a, a rainy, wet summer, apparently, and he is soaked to the skin, <laughs> and he's trying to get home. Uh, he sees, here's your anomalous light phenomenon, he sees a purple light behind him, and he thinks that, oh, well, uh, there must be a, a, a cart a cup closing on me, you're about to pass me. And, uh, you know, of course it's dark and being on a motorcycle, he's being extra careful. So he's watching for this vehicle and nothing catches him up until a little later, uh, a Jaguar motor car comes along and, uh, and does go past him. But about the time that car goes past him, they both encounter a cloud that has purple highlights in it. Um, which, you know, one of the things I say repeatedly now is if you see a cloud that is not a natural color, do not go into this cloud unless you want to have a paranormal <laughs> encounter. So this, this young fellow drives into this cloud and, uh, you know, classic uh, uh, effect, his bike dies immediately. And you would think, you know, he would coast to a stop, but he doesn't. He continues on up the hill. Whatever is this effect of this cloud is, it pulls him and the Jaguar motor car, both, both of which are dead, neither one of which will run, pulls both of them up the hill, not only up the hill, but over the top of the hill. And then it dissipates. And as soon as it dissipates, both vehicles are, are capable of starting. The young man notices that the uh, gas tank for his bike is warm, and he realizes that he is now bone dry. Huh. You know, what do you do? You start your bike up and you go on your way and you go home and wonder what the heck just happened to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that was one of my favorite stories from the book. I, I just, uh, you know, there are tons of, of really interesting encounters, but that one just really stuck with me for whatever reason. I can sympathize with the, uh, you know, the riding a motorcycle and being soaking wet. I've done that as a young man. I think my favorite, personal favorite, was in the uh, teleportation section where people, oh, yeah. were being, people were being teleported by this. Mm -hmm. And it was a fellow, I believe he was in China, and he ended up 300 miles away. And uh -huh. A couple weeks, yeah. I think, too, right? Yeah, if I recall. Yes, this was a time period before, you know, there were motor vehicles and airplanes and all that sort of thing. If I remember right, it was in the 1800s in China. And, uh, you know, as you may know from cultural studies, the, you know, the Chinese peasant who was a farmer didn't leave their plot of land for any length of time. However, this gentleman encountered a cloud in his fields and was apparently teleported to another location uh, approximately 300 some miles away. And it took him some time to get back to, uh, to his plot of land. You just don't do that. You know, there, there's no reason why someone would do a hoax like that because you know if you leave your plot unintended for any length of time uh, you know it's going to affect your harvest and may affect your ability to feed your family and sure. you know pay your taxes and all all kinds of, of effects may follow on from that so this fella had a legitimate experience apparently and he ended up someplace where he wasn't before and he had no idea how he got there and as so often happens with these teleportation events, if the person comes out, out somewhere where, you know, we can find them, you know, he went to the local authorities and said, I don't know where I am. You know, right. I, don't know. I don't know what's going on. 
And, uh, you know, I need help. You see the same thing with some of the South American cases where, uh, you know, doctor and his wife drive into a, a cloud in Argentina, I believe, and end up in Mexico. And, you know, they, they contact the local constabulary because they have no idea where they are and discover that they're, you know, a thousand or more kilometers away from where they were when they started. Wow. Um, was there missing time? In that? I know in the Chinese case, it was a considerable bit of missing time. But considerable bit, bit of time in the Chinese case, there was almost no missing time in, in, uh, in the doctor case. Wow. There is a, um, another one, same area, and I'm drawing a blank on the, the name of the area now, but um, this fellow was a, a business person, came out of a hotel, had just checked out of his hotel, got into his new car. This cloud appears from nowhere. Next thing this fellow knows, he is in some other part of the country, several hundred kilometers away. He flags down a truck and gets a ride into town, goes to the constabulary, to the local police force. They, of course, don't believe him, so they call the town that he had been in. The cops there go to the hotel and find his car sitting outside the hotel still running. Oh, wow. So he lost no time, but he ended up, you know, like hundreds of kilometers away. I mean, and this was in the 50s, right? There was no possible way that he could have bridged the gap from where he was to where he ended up in the time period that he did. I mean, there just, there weren't even aircraft that would go that fast. (laughs) Wow. So, uh, yeah. So he's like, okay. Hmm. So, of course, he has to find a way to get back to where he started. And those are the lucky ones because they actually ended up someplace where they could find their way back. (laughs) We don't know what happens to some of the people who disappear into these clouds. Um, You know, then you go into the whole, uh, you know, disappeared into fairyland and and ne'er the twain shall be. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, some of those teleportation stories were just wild. Um, It's just so bizarre. And you think, like... You know, I'm not a nuts and bolts UFO guy, just as I'm not a, a flesh yeah. and blood Bigfoot guy. But you think with yeah. like, if someone has missing time, then okay, and no memory, like okay, maybe, maybe something happened that they weren't aware of in that time period. Mm-hmm. If it's just an, you know, almost instant teleportation, that just seems like a practical joke from the other. You know? It's, yeah, yeah. It's it's like it's like the intelligence behind these things said, Haha, "Gotcha." Yeah. <laughs> you know. And, and you want the thing that I always wonder though when when I read these things is why this guy, right, right, you know, why this you know Joe business dude who's out you know selling his stuff or whatever it is he was doing he's going from place to place having business meetings and so forth, and this wild completely wild thing happens to him. Why this guy? Yeah, I mean. You know, what is it about this person that attracted the attention of the other? Right. Yeah. Um, you know, what is it about their, the person, their energy or whatever that, that attracted this bizarre event? Or what was it about them that needed this bizarre event to happen? Yes. Yeah. yeah. This is one of the, the things that I often wonder about when, when you talk to paranormal witnesses. Of course, you know, people are like, oh, well, you know, this thing happened to me. Blah, blah. We don't 
get to see a lot of times unless, I mean, you probably have, because I know that you've had witnesses that you followed up with over the course of time, Mm -hmm. but we often don't get to see what happens after. What kind of effect does this sort of thing have on a person's life? Yeah. Do they just go, oh, well, this, this really weird thing happened to me, and then they go on with their life? Or is it, initi- is it an initiatic uh, event for them that makes them aware of the other and makes them curious about it and, and you know, leads them into maybe a place they needed to be in? Yes, I think often people are changed by this stuff. You can't speak in absolutes when it comes to the paranormal Never, mm-hmm. sure. you, you know, so, Never, so this is absolutely not an absolute, but I've kind of had a, uh, an idea, you know, and try not to have confirmation bias about this, but it's, it's a thought that I've had that often these really extreme encounters where people are really scared, really terrified by things seem to be happening. Again, this is just my limited experience with people I've talked to often to people who have been like, I never believed in any of this at all. Mm-hmm. it's almost like they weren't ready for it and it comes out and slaps them across the face, uh, you know, metaphorically speaking, and it really rocks their world because mm-hmm. in no way were they prepared to, you know, monsters are real or what, you know, whatever ghosts are real, whatever it is, whatever mm-hmm. event it's UFOs. And uh, often, I'm, you know, again, I can't talk in absolutes, but often it seems like it's, it's these people <laughs> that have lived this like very materialist kind of idea of life that, mm-hmm. uh, struggle with the after effects of these yeah i mean i i I see that even in the uh you know the the flesh and blood bigfoot people or the nuts and bolts you know extraterrestrial craft people ufo people that you know it's one thing when you're talking about the experience you're trying to investigate the experience and so forth but it's another thing when you have an experience and, and a lot of times it'll, it will change people's opinions or if it doesn't change their opinion entirely, it softens their opinion Yeah. so that they're a little more willing to accept alternate points of view. Yeah. Yeah. There's something about this that's, that's somehow tied in with the human experience. That's mm-hmm. I've said it's been with us forever and probably will be in one form or another. And, yeah. And it keeps evolving. Yeah. You know, uh, it's, it's one of the things that I, I point out to, to people who, uh, well, yeah, again, you got the whole nuts and bolts thing with UFOs. Yeah. Everybody's like, Oh, it's an extraterrestrial craft from a highly advanced technological civilization. But in my Canadian monsters book, I have a, 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 you know, a couple of several reports where UFOs just basically screw up. You know, my favorite is uh, there's a, a, a nuclear power station on Lake Ontario. And um, uh, in the 60s or 70s, I, I don't remember exact dates, but this actually rated a log entry that there was a, a, a an identified craft spotted out over the lake near, near the plant. Witnesses at the plant testified that the UFO dropped something into the water. And then they testified that the dang thing kept coming back every couple of days and seemed to be looking for whatever it was that <laughs> dropped in the water. It's like, now, come on, seriously. If you're talking about a highly advanced technological civilization, A, why would they need to drop a probe? Right. I mean, wouldn't they have the, have the scanners and sensors and things that they need to be able to determine whatever it is they want to know about that plant? 
And even if they did, why would they not be able to find it later? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, know? I, you have a similar example yeah. in Mysteries in the Mist. It's a UFO that drops a ladder down. And I'm, uh-huh. I'm, yeah. I'm reading the story and I'm not, I, it didn't occur. But then, you know, in your commentary afterwards, you're like, now why would this highly advanced culture from outer space need a ladder to get down from the ship? Mm-hmm. It's a fantastic point. Absolutely fantastic. Or or you have, have the situation, uh, the, there's a, uh, a great story in Mysteries in the Mist where a young lady is vacationing. It's in Australia, I believe. Vacationing a nice villa type of setup on the um, on the coast of, of Australia. Sitting and she's reading a book or something, looks out and there's a beautiful pink cloud off on the horizon as the sun is going down. She thinks that's very lovely and uh, she goes back to doing whatever she's doing. She looks up a few minutes later and the cloud is closer to her. So she's like, hmm, that's odd. And she goes out. Uh, she's on a cliff, you know, sort of looking out over the ocean, right? She's looking out at this cloud, and she realizes that this cloud is actually uh, basically surrounding and disguising this UFO that's approaching the shore. And she's looking down at this thing. So if you were, if she'd been standing on the beach, she'd have been looking up, and all she would have seen would been would have been a cloud, right? But because she had a different vantage point, she could see the craft itself, this whatever it is. Um, so this thing comes to the beach. It lands on the beach. And <laughs> basically, uh, uh, it, it uh, I can't remember whether it was a flare or what it was, but it, it signals. like It does like a signal, like a, a light signal of some kind. And that signal is acknowledged by something off in the, in the distance. And then the humanoid or whatever gets back in the craft and flies off and goes off toward this signal. Right. It's like, seriously, they couldn't find each other without <laughs> shooting flares or whatever. You know, yeah, yeah, and why the hell does a, U, you know, why did, why the hell does a UFO need to stop park over a lake and drop a hose in? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, so these are all things that I've encountered in, in, in my research and it's enough to make me go, okay, well, I think there's something more going on here, something stranger going on here than just some interstellar craft flying to planet Earth. Because seriously, highly advanced technological civilization, what possible use could they have for a bunch of, you know, featherless bipedal apes, (laughs) You you know, who are pretty much intent on killing each other all the time anyway? You know, it's a known aggressive species. You know, why would you even mess with them? You know, if you wanted to, to do scientific studies of them, you do the, do it from orbit, right? <laughs> One would think. Certainly, I'm already in that camp. You didn't have to convince me, but it was excellent points yeah. when you just point out how silly some of these, these contraptions are for, a, you know, supposedly advanced interstellar space people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and then you go back to the early days of, of UFOs, and you have the you know the airships with their pancakes and stuff. Oh yeah, so. yeah. I love the airship stories. I absolutely love them. Oh, I love those. I, I love them. They stop and you know drop ropes down and rope ladders down and climb down and have dinner with people. Yeah, and yeah. stuff. It's just great. Oh, fantastic stuff. And and you know someone else pointed out that that UFOs are. Always a couple steps ahead of us, technology-wise. So these mm-hmm. airship reports are right before we develop airships. Right. You know, and then, you know, you get into, uh, you know, the, the World War II era and you get the Foo Fighters and mm-hmm. you get the ghost rockets. 
then you get flying saucers, you know, and then it, it evolves into these giant triangle craft that have, that have been flying around. And right before we yeah, had the stealth bomber. They're just all, yeah, and they're always just a little bit ahead of where we are, yeah. but not right. so far ahead. You know, the thing that really sets them apart is this, is their performance. Mm-hmm. You know, and the fact that they can do things in, a, in, in, you know, in our, in our gravity that we could possibly as, as human beings do, but it's always just a little bit ahead of where we might be. So to give folks an idea of what you cover in here, if you don't mind, can I ask for like your favorite story from each section? Is that, oh gosh. You've done the uh, press for this for quite a bit before talking with me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, well let's, so I'll tell you what, let's go in, through each, each section. If anything jumps out for you, a story jumps out for you, we can talk about it. So, well, I, I can tell you that, uh, you know, as far as the, the, the cryptid section goes, I, I think that probably one of my favorite stories is, is one that most people probably haven't heard of. It's a Welsh derivative of the, of the Sasquatch phenomena. The Welsh name for this, which I wouldn't even attempt to pronounce because I know I would slaughter it, translates to something like Monarch of the Mists. In the, uh, the legend of this, this being... Uh, I'm going to call it a being because I, I don't really think of this one as a creature because it mm-hmm. strikes me as being a very earth spirit sort of thing. Sure. Uh, but this creature, this this being is supposed supposed to uh, inhabit the mists uh, uh, on certain mountainous crags in um, or craggy mountains in Wales. And it said that, uh, you know, if you displease it, uh, you know, and you're climbing one of these mountains, you're in trouble because it wouldn't hesitate to throw you off the mountain if it really, really wanted to. So the Monarch of the Mist has a, a kind of a mixed reputation as being, you know, a, a rather fierce guardian of the mountains that it's uh, a part of. The interesting story to me is uh, there's a town that's uh, not too far from the mountainous areas of Wales, where this uh, fellow who was a you know, factory worker or something along that line was walking his dog, as so often happens in paranormal stories. He's walking his dog, and his dog starts to, to do the, the characteristic, oh, my God, there's something in the bushes, um, help dad, hiding behind his feet, and that sort of thing. Um, he looks up, and he sees what he describes as a gorilla <laughs> in the bush. Now, of course, gorillas are not indigenous to whales in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> he says that it was a gorilla or like a Yeti uh, is, is exactly how he describes it as a, as a Yeti. And this thing makes enough of an impression on him that he actually uh, you know, notifies the local police. And the really interesting part of the story is that the local crime prevention officer uh, gives a quote to the local newspaper that says, we take these Yeti reports very seriously. And we'll be uh, increasing patrols in this area. Now, that made me think, well, gosh, how many times do we get Yeti reports in this area that they're just so nonchalant about it? (laughs) I enjoyed that story because of the the police angle to it. You know, the the fellow saying, well, you know, we get these Yetis and, you know. We take them very seriously because we don't want them harming our citizens or anything. (laughs) I I am always... always fascinated by 
Sasquatch like things in uh, UK, Scotland, and Ireland. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and I, I do, of course, tell the story of the Gray Man of Bakdui too mm-hmm. um, in, in the book because uh, that's a, a classic myth story where. You know, you have a lot of the uh, a lot of the people that have encounters with the gray man. Uh, first of all, Makdui is a is a I think it's the second highest mountain in Scotland, and there is uh, the legend of the gray man who is uh, supposed to be the creature on this mountain. There are several different accounts from various mountaineers uh, over time, and most of those accounts have uh, what you've been, what you've uh, called, I believe in the past, the force poltergeist phenomena, mm-hmm. you know, so the person will hear footsteps, they'll have, uh, you know, rocks moving, there will be uh, general movement, they don't see anything in the mist, normally, but they have this overwhelming sense of panic, and they bail out away from the mountain. Uh, they go flying down the side of the mountain. In the last story that I tell, though, uh, fellows up there, it's, uh, it's either during or shortly after World War II. I think it was during World War II, actually. He's up there. Um, you know, food is, is short in that time period. So he figures that he's, he takes a pistol with him because he figures he might bag something for dinner that night because there are grouse and, and so forth up on the mountain. He, again, uh, as with a lot of these uh, experiences, has that sort of poltergeistish phenomena uh, going on around him. He hears footsteps. He feels he's being followed. He feels he's being watched. He's becoming increasingly distressed. In this case, though, he says that a large figure, a large humanoid figure, rose up out of the mist and came toward him. And, you know, he opens fire on this thing to no effect, as often happens in these cases. And then, like everybody else, bails out down the mountain. Now, the semi-miraculous thing in all of these stories is that every one of these people that had these encounters made it off the mountain in a mist, in the fog, on a treacherous mountainside, you know, as a former search and rescue volunteer, one of the things that we would tell you if you got lost on a mountainside is to sit the heck down, you know, and don't move until you can see where you're going. Right. Um, these guys all bailed off the side of this mountain in the fog, you know, very minimal visibility, and all of them made it off of the mountain. So you have to wonder if the gray man was kind of like, okay, I chased you off your mountain, but I don't want to kill you. Right, right. <laughs> Go that right. way. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, those, those are, are great stories too. Oh, yeah. Um, and the evidence of these, this creature being or whatever is the same kind of evidence that you would see people putting forward for uh, the Bigfoot Sasquatch here in North America. You know, they're, they hear sounds, there's that feeling of being fought, watched, the footsteps, and, and uh, you know, there may have been some rock throwing or rock clacking or something like that. I don't remember. But, you know, those are those all things that, you know, your Sasquatch researchers will say, oh, yeah, there's definitely a Sasquatch in the area, except it's on a mountain in Great Britain. Right. Yeah. You know, where everybody says, oh, well, you couldn't have Sasquatches because there's not enough forest there. You know. Right. <sighs> Yeah. yeah, hard to imagine a breeding population anywhere in the UK, Scotland, Ireland. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, exactly. But they have encounters, you know. And, but there and, are encounters. Yeah, very believable ones as well. Which makes you wonder, you know, well, you know, I mean, it goes back to the whole, you know, where the footprints end thing, you know, where this thing is coming from. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
Where does it come from and where does it go? That's the uh, And where did it go? That's the big questions. Yeah. Why do the tracks start in one place and end in another place and you can't figure out where it came from and where it went? Yep, exactly. And why are the tracks on the roof of your house? I mean, that, that's um, a big one for me. The, the things on roofs, mm -hmm. I don't know if there's a whole book in that, but it is, again, something else that's ubiquitous across these different reports throughout the ages. And that was one of the big mm -hmm, things mm -hmm. for me. Two, the two big things for me that kind of moved me uh, vastly away from the flesh and blood thing was finding these folkloric reports of these just odd things from Europe that they're saying one of the mm -hmm. traits they said is that, oh it will get up and walk on your roof like what an right. odd, what an odd detail the second was glowing red eyes which you find in fairies and, yeah, and, yeah. and trolls and yeah. vampires and werewolves and everything and the interesting thing to me is is you know if you start to, to cross-reference into other paranormal areas uh you know you read Linda Godfrey's work she's got several stories about these dogmen creatures or whatever being on roofs. Mm -hmm. If you read the Navajo, Diné people, uh, their accounts of uh, skinwalker encounters frequently start with this thing walking around on their roof. Sure. Um, it's, it's a, you know, it's a thing. You know, yeah. It's, it's definitely a thing. And, uh, you know, something again, that bears further, uh, you know, because uh, you know, you have three separate phenomena, but they're doing the same thing. Why? Right. right. Yeah. Exactly. Things are far stranger than some folks would like to believe. Yeah. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. So in section two, in uh, Mysteries in the Mist, you cover what mm -hmm. you call Phantoms of the Mist, which is a really broad category. I just want to ask oh, you, yes. in the amongst this, is, you know, vampires and ghosts and shadow people, et cetera, et cetera. But mm -hmm. I want to ask you, in your terminology, when referring to fairy, you simply call them the folk. Now, I've heard people mm -hmm. say that they, being the, you know, the, the fairies, do not like that name. Is that, Those did, ones. Did, is that why you chose that, that terminology? Not particularly. Um, you know, the thing about that realm is that the the strictures that people placed on themselves in relationship to those beings very wildly, according to culture, area, geography, uh, et cetera, et cetera. 
So in one place, you might have them referred to as those ones. Some people will call them the people of peace. Some people will call them the fair folk. There's as many names for the fae as there are, uh, or the fairy as there are, um, you know, the different kinds of people out there. Sure. Um, I didn't consciously use that name to, to be adversarial. Um, I certainly don't have an adversarial relationship with the fae. You come to a point where there's only so many, so, so many times you can say fae, fairy, True folk, enough. you know, whatever, you know, you just, True <laughs> enough, yeah. it, 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 you just kind of start looking for another synonym. <laughs> sure, sure. So, and, and there are some people that refer to them as the folk or the fairer folk or whatever. Yeah, so, um, yeah. I, I felt it was fair game and I didn't feel anybody did you know, got particularly insulted about that. Oh, no, no. I thought you were doing it as a, as a sort of precautionary compliment to the Fae, because like I said, I've had people email me and say, they don't like being called that. You shouldn't call them that. Well, I have had experience with the Fae. I've taken uh, seminars with the noted fairy seer. I think if I was going to tick off the fair folk, I would have done it by now. (laughs) (laughs) So... And I, I haven't certainly had any uh, any experience of them being ticked off about about this book. Um, in fact, they seem to kind of enjoy the fact that you know I'm digging up Canadian monsters and mysteries has a whole section. Uh, your friend Joshua Cutchin is is uh, excited about because um, I went to uh, Barbara Yates' book on the on the fairy in Newfoundland and and based a whole section on the on that book, uh, which he apparently loved a great deal. It was one of his, his things that he really enjoyed in his research. So, but yeah, um, I, I talk a good bit about the Fae um, because they are known to cloak themselves in mist basically as a form of escape. Uh, a lot of times, you know, people see them and then they disappear into the mist and mist is often associated with fairy sightings. But yeah, there were a whole lot of other things that made it into that phantom section too. That uh, uh, there's all kinds of examples of. You know, well, of course, ghosts are very traditionally associated with the mist. Yes, um, yeah. and I, I give a couple of examples of that. The phantom black dogs, as as I said, that was one of the things that got me going on this research. Sure. Um, yeah. Because there were there's that one classic black dog story where uh, one of the, the first editors from the Oxford English Dictionary was on holiday in, in Great Britain with his family, and they went hiking, and, and again they got socked in by fog, and again they're wandering around on a mountainside in the fog, which is not a high percentage move. This large black dog appears to them, and uh, you know, basically refuses to let the father go any further than he'd already gone. And when the fog dissipated, along with the black dog, they realized that if they had gone farther, they would have gone off the precipice. Mm-hmm. So the classic phantom black dog is guardian right. story. Yeah, one of my favorite black dog tales. That one in the the you know, I, I had a whole section in the black dog book about you know, what happens when you shoot at a black dog, uh, which is basically nothing. Right. Um, there's a, a tale in, in the book about a young man who's out walking in the fog and, and he hears the black dog coming. I don't know if it's baying or if he just hears the, the, uh, the, the footsteps or, or what the deal was with that. But uh, he hears the black dog coming and he beats feet for the house. He gets, you know, gets back to his house and he, you know, 
pounds on the door. His father opens the door and he gets inside. And he's like all shook up because he's heard this thing about baying and, and so forth. And of course, a lot of people in, in the UK associate the black dog with impending death. So you don't want to encounter one really. So interestingly, the old guy seems to be made of sterner stuff. And he goes up to the second floor of the house and he looks out the window. And sure enough, there's a black dog down in his, <laughs> down in his front yard. And he's not having that. So he goes and gets his fouling piece, uh, you know, the, the shotgun for shooting birds, right? Mm-hmm. And um, he unloads on this thing. He drops about probably five or six rounds of, of ammunition at this, at this black dog. It has no effect whatsoever, other than the fact that their outhouse is very thoroughly ventilated when they <laughs> go out the next morning. <laughs> These creatures are apparitional enough to where you're not going to shoot one and bring it down. I definitely want to talk about some Canadian monsters. So that's just real quickly. Section three is all UFOs. You have three yep. parts on UFOs, one part on abduction. I just want to mention what I thought was a fabulous case that I had never heard. It's where they are flying in a plane. I think it was a prop plane, if I'm remembering correctly. And they basically fly into this cloud and it's, they described it almost like custard, I think. Mm-hmm. Coated the entire plane and their gauges and such wouldn't work. The electron. I think were the elect the electronics. They stayed flying, so it didn't it didn't cut off. Right, but right. they had but all of their yeah all of their electronic instruments, all of their magnetic instruments, everything was completely useless. Yeah, and and remained useless until they they actually flew out of the cloud. And the interesting part about that story is that and there's a, another similar one that we can talk about. The interesting thing about that story is that once they cleared the cloud. They discovered that they were had had a slight teleportation experience because they were farther along their route than they should have been. Mm. They were much closer to, I think it was Daytona Beach, than, than they should have been, according to the flight time, the cruising speed, and so forth of the aircraft that they were flying in. They had some moments of panic and then cleared the cloud. And as soon as they cleared the cloud and could get their bearings again, they realized that they were much closer to their destination than they would have been if they had been flying a normal, normal pattern. So that was interesting. Yeah. It's um, such a bizarre account and such a bizarre detail. That's one of those bizarre details where you're like, could someone have even made that up? The idea that it, yeah. it coated the plane like custard, but like what a bizarre detail. Yeah, it's like, okay, yeah. So, okay, so clouds that look like custard go on the list of things to avoid, too. Sure, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, because, you know, there were some um, stories of ocean-going vessels, too, that encountered these fogs. And, uh, you know, the fog was so thick that they, the, the one uh, that I'm thinking of was a ship that was towing a barge. They went into the cloud you know, basically the ship, you know, steered into the cloud and lost power. Uh, the engines began to lose power almost immediately. And they uh, had a double of the time getting out of this cloud. Uh, they did finally succeed in, in clearing the major fog bank, basically. And the captain ordered uh, some of the crew to go and check on the barge. And when they went to check on the barge, when they put their hands on the side of the barge, it was actually warm to the touch, mm. uh, kind of like the the gas tank I was telling you about earlier. Right, yeah. um, something that that happens you know frequently. But during the time period that they were in this cloud, they lost all instrumentation. 
They had no way to navigate. They couldn't see anything. They couldn't dead reckon anything. They just basically had to point the boat in a direction and, and, and try to, to, to motor out of it. Um, which was difficult because the engines were failing, mm-hmm. but they did finally manage to get out. But you, you wonder what would have happened if they hadn't right. get any number of uh, disappearances at sea. Um, you know, everybody talks about, Oh, well, you know, they, the, the ship, you know, the, the whole Bermuda triangle thing, right. You know, the ship disappears and there's no trace of it or the plane disappears. There's no trace of it. Uh, you know, if you have a, particularly with an aircraft, if you have a, a Situation like the one that happened to um, oh, Martin. His first name was Martin, and I can't remember his last name. It's the guy that wrote Cyborg, which was the novel that the Six Million Dollar Man was based on. Yeah, Martin yeah. Caden, something like that. Navy pilot flying with a whole ton of of other Navy pilots on a highly, you know, technically advanced naval aircraft coming back over the Atlantic again, passes into one of these clouds, they lose all instrumentation, all of their electronic countermeasures, everything. The whole plane just goes, except for the engines. And, you know, only the fact that the pilots were all, you know, like, you know, top-level aviators, they managed to keep this plane in the air. But if you had less experienced pilots, that plane probably would have gone down somewhere, and who knows where it would have gone down. You You wouldn't even know where to look for it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> because there was no radio communication. All of the all of the instruments, all of the radio communication, all the satellite stuff, everything that they used for navigation and tracking and all that stuff was dead. It was gone. So it would make it much easier for a plane to just disappear. Section four, just for our listeners, we're going to move on to the monsters here, but section four covers mysterious myths, time slips, teleportation, and disappearances. I know people always like the missing 411 type stuff. So there's oh, a yeah. couple sections on disappearance. And, and section five is your kind of miscellaneous. It's kind of things that don't fit in the other sections, but still plenty of weirdness to go through there. Yeah, but still had plenty of clouds and weird things to have happen. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's Mysteries in the Mist, Mist Fog, and Clouds in the Paranormal. And the new book, which I don't have in front of me, it's so new that I don't have it here. What's the title of this again? It's called Canadian Monsters and Mysteries. And as I mentioned earlier, I moved to Canada a couple of years ago. And of course, being the odd fellow that I am, I had to start to explore the odd side of Canada. And I quickly found that there's all kinds of interesting stuff, paranormal stuff here in in Canada, so much so that I had to narrow things down a bit. This book doesn't include a section on Sasquatch, for instance, because there are so many people doing that research. Um, I'm actually going to look at Sasquatch in some of the less frequent, frequently mentioned areas of um, Bigfooting in a, a future work. I don't talk about Champ because, again, that's being very ably researched by another researcher. I didn't get into the Wendigo lore because BTF has just released a really good book on the Wendigo that uh, that covers it in, in extreme detail. And I didn't talk hauntings because Canadians have ghosts everywhere. <laughs> it's like, uh, that's another whole book too. Sure. At least one, probably more than one. You could probably write one for every province in Canada. I'm sure. 
And there's still plenty of weirdness to have happen in, in Canada. And I know that, uh, you know, time is, is growing short, but uh, I have to say that my absolute favorite thing in this book was something that caught me completely flat-footed. I'd never heard of this before. Uh, I mentioned uh, John Worm's um, Strange Creatures Seldom Seen. And he's... Uh, cryptozoologist who has fairly apparently pretty deep con, uh, contacts into the uh, First Nations people in Manitoba, and such that they're actually willing to talk to him about these things where they wouldn't or ordinarily be willing to talk about them. Um, the elders, he, he talks about how the elders tell them, you know, you don't discuss this stuff. It's not, you know, it's, it's between you and, and whatever it is that you saw. But you have that tension where you've seen something incredible and you really, really want to tell somebody. Yeah, yeah. So John Worms has a whole section in this book on giant beavers, which is something I had never heard. Apparently, uh, there are a number, and you got to remember that the people who are giving this testimony are people who hunt and trap and fish not only, you know, as part of their, uh, the way they make money, but as, as a means of survival, you know, that this is how they feed their families. A lot of times they know the land and they know the animals that live on the land and they know what a beaver looks like. Um, and, uh, you know, John Worms was, uh, talking to, uh, he first got into this because there were these mysterious holes that were being found on the reserves, large three foot diameter holes with smooth sides. Right. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't figure out where these things were. He, he couldn't figure out where these things were coming from. And the native people were like, Oh, well, you know, the snakes live in there. He's like, what? Yeah. There's, there's giant snakes and they live in there. It's like, okay, but where did the tunnel come from? Cause snakes can't dig tunnels. It's like, oh, well, the giant beavers dig those. <laughs> yeah, and they're very matter-of-fact about this, right? It's like, okay, yeah, the giant beavers did it. And he's like, giant beavers? So it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, if you go out to, you know, different areas in, in, you know, up in the First Nations areas up here, you'll find beaver lodges that, they're, that are the size of men's houses. And he's like, oh. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, he wasn't sure what to make of this at first, but he kept getting reports from people that were telling him that they were seeing beavers that were the size of bears. I mean, great big beavers. And, and somebody actually made a statue of one of these things. And there's a picture of Worm standing in, 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 a, in a clearing next to the statue. And the thing comes up to his shoulder, right? I mean, it's standing up on its hind legs, right? You know, there's a story of a couple of native women who are picking berries and uh, they see a couple of these beavers, you know, dash off of a, of a cliff and jump into the water and go swimming around. Like I said, there's several stories about these encounters with these giant beavers. And the clincher is that Worms himself actually has an experience oh, wow. uh, that, that, he that he documents uh, in the book. 
where he was out next to a river, again, First Nations area, uh, reserve. He's camped out along one of the rivers. He thought, this is a place that a lot of people have, have said that they've seen these things. He says, I'll camp out here for a night and see what happens, right? He's like the dude who goes out and says, ah, I'm going to camp out in this area because somebody said they saw a Sasquatch here once, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Maybe I'll see a Sasquatch. Except in this case, he actually did. He saw a beaver that you know, had a head the size of a football and that he estimated was somewhere between six and seven feet long. Wow. Uh, and, you know, cause I mean, beavers, you know, even a, a, a large adult beaver doesn't weigh more than, you know, doesn't even weigh a hundred pounds. Right. And we're talking a beaver the size of a bear. Yeah. Literally. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, you know, there's, there's some evidence that these guys may have taken up eating fish, which is not a part of the standard beaver diet. The other thing about these guys is they're a little more aggressive than regular beavers. I was going to say, so my experience with regular beavers are they can be quite ornery. Canoeing at night, they'll come up and slap their tail right next to your canoe and scare the heck out oh, of you. Oh, yeah. Um, they, yeah, yeah. They will hold their ground sometimes, uh, amazingly mm-hmm. uh, so. Uh, a regular-sized beaver can be a problem if it wants to be. I cannot imagine a giant-sized beaver. Uh, yeah, so story is a, a couple of native kids driving around the res. Um, they, uh, they see this beaver off in the distance, right? And uh, the, they stop the car, and one dude grabs a baseball bat and says, hey, I'm going to go get dinner, right? <laughs> Um, so he goes, he goes off toward this beaver and the closer he gets to the thing, the, the more he realizes how big this thing is. Right. And he quickly determines that maybe he's not going to get dinner and maybe he should go back to the car because <laughs> the thing turns on him and starts to chase him. Right. Wow. He makes it back to the car, but, uh, yeah, you know, they're, they're looking at the shoulder of this beaver through the car window, you know, and they're like, okay, that's not a normal beaver. Yeah. Uh, it's not the kind of thing. So of the cryptid story, all the craziness that I encountered, those are, are really my favorite stories. A quick you know, look. There were, in prehistoric times, giant beaver throughout the yes, United States and Canada. Yeah. Ohioensis castorides, I believe it was called. Um, and there were beavers that size yeah, yeah. that were extant in the United or in the, the, the States and in, in Canada mm-hmm. uh, in that region. Up until fairly recently, so it's entirely possible that you're dealing with a relic population of these things that that people you know just lost track of. I mean, Canada is, has got one of the the premier Lazarus uh, species in um, the the wood bison. Um, mm-hmm. There's a species of bison that lives up here that um, uh, was. You know, it was labeled extinct by science, right? They they said that they died out due to brucellosis and overhunting, uh, you know, back in the 20s, I believe. And then, you know, 20 or 40 years later or whatever, uh, uh, Manitoba wildlife officers flying over a forest and sees a herd of 200 of the freaking things running around in the woods. Yeah, so if you can hide wood bison for decades, then, uh, you know, you can hide just about anything in the Canadian wilderness, right? Yeah, Because sure. this is the largest land animal in North America, right? Uh, the, the moose is tallest, but they don't outweigh bison. Gotcha. You know, yeah. Bison are, are actually bigger, you know, uh, you know weight-wise. 
so that that's a yeah a little fun story. The, the other thing that's just so common because we have all of these large, deep, cold lakes, and we have large, deep, cold oceans. And Canada has the longest coastline in the world. There's all kinds of sea creatures that that get reported. Uh, you know, classic sea serpent sightings, but also um, uh, there's a something that uh, the the Inuit called a nenorlok, uh, which is like a sea lion, like stress on lion. It looks like a lion, mm-hmm. right? And you would think that it was just a native legend, right? Just a native legend. I hate it when they say that. Right, yeah. Uh, except that there was a report from a, a, a British ship returning to the New World back in the 1600s, I believe. So we got, you know, sea serpents and, and such on, on both sides of the continent. Um, and then all in lakes, all across the entire country, starting in, in British Columbia and working its way all the way across to New Brunswick. You can find a lake that has a lake monster in it in every pro- just about every province in Canada, um, and sometimes more than one lake. You have Ogopogo in, in Okanagan, Lake Okanagan. I think it was called Bessie in, in Lake Erie here in Ontario. Lake Simcoe has something called uh, Kempenfelt Bay uh, Kelly. Um, there's Memphrey in, in uh, a lake w- whose name I can't even begin to pronounce in, in Quebec. There's Lake Utopia Monster in uh, New Brunswick. So uh, all throughout Canada, you can find these aquatic cryptids. And there's a, a number of theories about what these creatures are. Uh, a super popular one is the uh, for Ogopogo and then Caddy, which is the creature that lives off the shore on the Pacific side, is uh, the Zoiglodon, which is a primitive whale that people theorize it could be a relic of, of um, it could be a relic population of these things. That's you know, some of which have made the, their way inland and adapted to the to the lake waters. And considering that uh, you have reports of people who've actually gotten close enough to this thing to touch, the reports for Caddy and Ogopogo are so similar, and the, the witness testimony is so consistent that you have to think that there's something that they're seeing there. Either we have a relic population of these, these Zoiglodons, or we have a situation like the, the BBC show Primeval, where these anomalies are opening up and dumping prehistoric creatures in the lakes. I, right. yeah. I, I'm not, you know, there's no telling what's happening, but uh, at this point, I believe just about any. But after reading about some of this stuff, you know, because it's literally, you know, the guy's out fishing, and it's like, oh, look, there's a lake monster. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very, very common here in, in Canada. Um, so we do I talk about those guys. There's a lot of that. Um, I, you know, of course, deal with, a, you know, my favorite, one of my favorite top t- topics. We talk a little bit about the Lugaru and the, and the man wolf. Um, there's some good uh, man wolf sightings, both from Linda Godfrey and from some other sources. Uh, additionally, uh, you know, I talk about the phantom trains and phantom ships that are seen in places like Nova Scotia. Yeah, I love those stories. It's really, really interesting, interesting stuff. There's a a great uh, phantom ship that uh, is seen off the coast of Nova Scotia, Northumberland Strait, I believe. 
people will actually call this in uh, to the Coast Guard and stuff. There, there's a vessel out in, in the water and it's burning. And the Coast Guard has gotten so used to these reports that they actually ask them, you know, okay, what kind of vessel are you seeing? You know, it's a sailing craft, blah, blah, blah. And it's, oh, yeah, that's the phantom ship. Yeah, wow. Don't worry about that. It's, it's not because they've actually dispatched um, rescue vessels from Charlottetown Harbor. And these vessels, you know, got close enough to this thing to where they could feel the heat from the fire. But they're wondering to themselves why these people that they can see running around on the rigging and stuff aren't, you know, jumping overboard because the vessel is obviously lost, right? Right. You know, they could feel the heat from the flames, but when they got to within a, a certain distance of this thing, here's your mist again, you know, fog settles over it and then it's gone. Wow. <laughs> So yeah, um, there's there's a couple of uh, couple of, of phantom ship stories. Um, uh, I talk about the the Mary Celeste and uh, a related case or not related case, but a similar case, the Resolven, where the vessels recovered, but nobody could find the crew, which is you know falls into the realm of mysterious disappearances. There's a whole section on on the ferry. Ferry of Nova Scotia, which relies a lot on uh, the work of Mary Fraser, who wrote a, a popular folklore book about Nova Scotia. Also, the Ferry of Newfoundland, where we get into Barbarieti's stuff, which are is very similar to fairy lore in the Celtic lands, you know, Scotland, Ireland, and so forth. Yeah. Um, and then some fairy sightings that have happened in other parts of, of the country, because the uh, the little people. Uh, as the native folk over here call them, you know, are are well known to to you know to the the uh, the indigenous population too, and there are sightings of them. An interesting uh, paranormal cross reference: uh, the native folk tell us that, uh, and this again comes from John Warms. The native folk tell us that there are uh, species of these uh, of the little people that are slightly taller than most of the, uh, the the fairy type folk that they see, and these people have uh, sort of tight, uh, elastic, rubbery skin, and uh, have a kind of a frog-like appearance. And I'm reading the, the, the description of this thing, and I'm thinking to myself about the Loveland Frog Man. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and going, well, it's not too far from Canada to what's that, Ohio, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe, maybe one of these guys paid a visit to the, to the you know, to Loveland. Because um, it, it sure, it, the, the description just really, I was like, oh, yeah, that could be, you know, because they're describing this, you know, very rubbery, froggy type skin. So I've uh, uh, so. written two books on this area here called Toad Road that uh, has mm -hmm. repeated paranormal encounters. And well, a woman called me one night, uh, it was after midnight, this woman called me. Mm. I pick up the phone, it was an older, older woman, and she starts talking about all these experiences she had in the area. And she's telling me about, you know, this mysterious guy in a black car that would follow them and, and this sort of thing. And she said, but, but the thing he had to really worry about was the toad man. And mm. I immediately assumed, so there was a legend that, well, there was a doctor. A doctor did live at the end of the road, and he probably was an angry guy. They, they called him a, a mad doctor. He was not. He was a you know respected local physician. 
But he probably did get mm-hmm. angry because people were partying on his property and trespassing all the time because of this, you know, legend trippers and so forth. So he probably mm-hmm. was an angry guy. So I assume she meant him. And at some point I realized, I was like, wait, you're not talking about Dr. Belknap. She's like, oh, no, no, no. I'm talking about the toad man that lived in the creek that would come out. And I said, well, did you see this? And she got real quiet and she said, I'm not telling you I saw him, but I'm not telling you I didn't see him either. And I, I couldn't pull any more information <laughs> up. And I kind of followed it away uh, because it's the area is called Toad Road, not for any other reason. It was a tow road. It was a towpath for, for a canal just over mm-hmm. time. Whispering down the lane, it became Toad Road. But I dug up another report from the early 1900s of uh, someone. Uh, uh, Toad Road is very close to where the Susquehanna dumps out into, uh, or rather the, the creek, Hudor's Creek, dumps out into the Susquehanna River there. And it was someone mm-hmm. on the river, maybe maybe a mile or two north of there on the banks of the river and they see what they call it a fish man stand up and mm-hmm. walk out of the water. And I thought, well, toad man, fish man, you know, these things aren't terribly different. So it lent credence to her report, but yeah, I, I'm fascinated by these, these frogmen and, and they are not as common, but still found in folklore, uh, in the far East. They're found the, the Hasterman in, I think, uh, um, Slavic folklore, and so forth. So there, mm-hmm. there are, you know, there are frogman accounts across the world. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I just, I just thought it was fascinating that, uh, you know, you had this description of this creature that, that was very similar to something that was described in another area. Yeah. Yeah. I just love these, uh, these cross-reference things that, oh, that pop up. Yeah. Comparative folklore is just, it's a joy. I just love it. so Yeah. Much. It's almost all way too much fun. Yeah. Travis Watson, he writes under the name of W.T. Watson. You can find his books anywhere you yep. get books. Amazon or your local bookstores can order them in. He's got the Black Dog book. You've got Mysteries in the Mist. You've got Canadian Monsters and Mysteries. Canadian Monsters and Mysteries and uh, fiction book. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I wrote a, a novel a while back called Hunting the Beast, um, right. which is also on my Amazon author page. All right. And more um, on the way, I'm, I'm sure. Well, yeah, I'm, my current project is, as I said, one of the things that I said in the conclusion to the Canadian Monsters and Mysteries book is that uh, it seems to me that Researchers in the in the United States, you know, they they look north of the border and all they see is a sheet of ice, um, and they, and they don't they don't think anything is happening up here. Um, and and part of the reason that I that I wrote this book was to um, you know alert people to the fact that there's plenty of of weirdness, no matter what kind of weirdness you're interested in, whether it's you know cryptid weirdness or UFO weirdness. We didn't even get into the UFOs. We had Shag Harbor and uh, the Falcon Lake incident that happened here in Canada, uh, both of which are well-documented, very strong UFO stories. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I wanted to make people aware that, uh, you know, those things that you're interested in don't stop at the Canadian border. Um, Excellent. They're, yes. happening, they're happening up here. And as I was doing the research for this book and, and looking at some of the Sasquatch lore before I decided that I couldn't really include that here, you know, a lot of people think that uh, just like they think that uh, Sasquatch only, um, those stories only happen in the Pacific Northwest, you know, Oregon, Washington, Northern California, and so forth. And, and we know that that's not true. It's not true in Canada either. There's plenty of, of Sasquatch goodness happening outside of uh, British Columbia. Um, and I've been 
looking at reports in places like Manitoba and Ontario and so forth, and there's some doozies. <laughs> so <laughs> that looks like it's going to be my next project. Excellent. Well, I've loved everything you've done so far. Looking forward to what you bring out in the future. And thanks for coming on Strange Familiars. Well, thank you for having me, Tim. And uh, good wishes to your, uh, to your listeners. Ninety days to the perfect puppy can help you with all of your puppy training needs. They have a relationship-based approach to training, which helps you and your puppy become perfect for each other. It's not about changing your puppy, forcing them into a mold. You and your puppy become perfect for each other. You kind of meet in the middle. You learn how to become perfect for each other. They have online sources, video lessons, a secret Facebook group, and of course, one-on-one options are available as well. You can find ninety days to the perfect puppy at sithappens.us. Let them help you understand how your dog thinks and apply proactive training methods so you and your puppy can become perfect for each other. With your puppies having problems with mouthing and biting, potty training, fear and nervousness, barking, chewing on furniture, shoes, or other things they shouldn't be chewing on, crate training, hyperactivity issues, leash training, or more, 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy can help you. They can teach you what to do and also what not to do. Again, you can find them at sithappens.us. Look for the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page. The Little Leather Library. It's not what you think. <laughs> It reminds me of so one of the hermits, and we've done a show on him. I think it was a patron show. Mm-hmm. One of the hermits that I'm writing about in the hermit book is known as the Leather Man. You have a search set for that. I have a search set for that. <laughs> His photos are prohibitively expensive, which is why I had to do a full-page illustration of him for the book. There's a guy, though, in Finland named Tom, who's a Leather Man as well. And well, his pictures go for not as much sometimes. Yeah, that's the problem with that search <laughs> That search leads to some results that uh, aren't exactly the hermit I was looking for. Let mm-hmm. me just say that. But this little leather book is not either of those things. This is a series that they did. It's quite literal. They're just little leather books that are classics. There's a whole series of them. I think this one dates, I think, to the 30s. It very much is a little leather book, but it's Alice in Wonderland, Lewis Carroll. And it has, I believe these are the original. Are they the tenial? Tenial illustrations, I believe. But it's tiny. It's like um, maybe four by three, I think. I don't have a ruler here, but I'm going to go with... Three and a half by... Let's get out the ruler. (laughs) Do you have a ruler over there? Damn, you frame woman. (laughs) (laughs) So for the noise factor, I'm going to edit that section out. But Allison got up and measured, and it is indeed four by three. She's very good with that because she worked at a frame shop in the past, and she's very good with measurements and estimates. So she hit the nail on the head. So this will be our Curiosity of the Week, the Little Leather Library volume of Alice in Wonderland. If you go to the show notes for this episode at strangefamiliars.com, you will see an image of this. You can click on that. It will take you to our Etsy shop where you can purchase this and a few other Curiosities of the Week. I just added a lot of photos in the past week. Uh, some memorial things. Um, on Etsy? Yeah. 
I didn't even notice. <laughs> Apparently, you're not the only one. They're still all there. <laughs> oh, so yes, Allison's added a bunch of extra photos. If you like the artwork for this episode, the Bigfoot Creature in the Mist, Wild Man in the Mist, that will be in the Etsy shop. The episode artwork usually sells pretty quickly. I really like this one. I really like this one. So run, do not walk to the Etsy shop if you want to own the original for that. Also at Etsy, we have Strange Familiars t-shirts. The High Strangest Tour shirts are completely sold out. But we do have the original Awoken Tree shirts. Plenty of sizes available for that. And a new empty box in the house, which is a delight. Exactly. Some place to put more junk. We have artwork, mm-hmm. both originals and prints. We have copies of my books. All of my books are available on Etsy. If you get them there, they come signed. Strange familiar stickers, patches, and much more. Our shop name is Lost Grave. That's one word. But if you type in Strange Familiars in Etsy, you should see our stuff come up. While you're on Etsy, check out our friends at Karmic Garden and Chad Shop, Ruck Rabbit Outdoors. I believe that's it for this week. We will be back soon with more Strange Familiars. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. Intro and background music is by Stone Breath. If you want to hear more or purchase music, you can go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com. Strange Familiars is on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars where you can join the Strange Familiars Gathering Group. And we're on Instagram, at Strange Familiars, one word. Please give us a follow. And you can find us on the web, always at strangefamiliars.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. 
book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.